ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. It's a popular teaching that is being propagated today by many preachers. Some refer to it as the prosperity doctrine, others the health and wealth gospel, some call it name it and claim it, uh, derogatorily, some call it blab it and grab it. It's a teaching that it is always God's will for all of His children to be healed of every disease and to be rich. One well-known preacher says it this way, if a believer lives in poverty, he or she is living outside of God's intended will. You must realize that it is God's will for you to prosper. And of course, it naturally follows from that teaching that if you are ever experiencing sickness or poverty, you are out of the will of God. If you are ever experiencing sickness or poverty, it is due to your lack of faith. Now, it's pretty obvious why that's a popular teaching today. It's popular with preachers because he's saying God wants you to be rich, but he can't bless you unless you send me money. Unless you send your seed offering to me, which means the preacher gets rich. And it's obvious why it's popular with people because it's promising what most people naturally love, and that is money, riches. What I find interesting about that position is that it's a distinctly American teaching. And that is because it sells in America. It is really the fulfillment of the American dream. I don't have to come to church on Sunday and find out how to live the rest of the week. I come on Sunday and it encourages the way I'm living the rest of the week. Randy and Laura Graham are going to Turkey in a few days. In Turkey, less than 1% of the population claims to be Christian. In Turkey, when you take a stand for Christ, it's laden with opposition and difficulties. I doubt that they come back telling us that this was a popular teaching in Turkey. Hardly a week goes by that I don't read of a church in China that has been burned down by the government or where Christians have been persecuted. You take this teaching to China and the Christians there will laugh at you. You see, the Chinese Christians know that following Jesus Christ is more likely the path to hardship and persecution than it is to health and wealth. But the biggest problem with that doctrine is that the Bible doesn't teach that faith always leads to health and wealth and prosperity. And there's no clearer passage addressing that subject than the one we're going to look at today in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 to 40. It describes for us the outcomes of faith. And I've listed three. I want you to get this at the front end so if you're going to go to sleep today, you'll have the package right here. The three outcomes are that sometimes faith leads to miraculous victories. Sometimes faith leads to terrible trials and life-altering losses. Always faith leads to eternal blessings. And the point is this, 
the same faith may lead to different short-term outcomes, but it will always lead to the same long-term outcome. Now, let's look more closely at these three outcomes. The first, faith may bring miraculous results. Now, the author of Hebrews sounds a lot like a preacher with his eye on the clock in verse 32. He says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, and so forth. He could say far more if time allowed, but instead he simply lists a few names without comment, and then he describes the experiences of others without naming them. And there are two things I want you to note under this first point. Number one, faith is available to flawed people. The first four people he mentions in verse 32 are from the period of the judges, followed by David and Samuel and then the prophets. Now what I find interesting is that all the individuals mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 are in historically chronological order. Starts with Abel and then Enoch, Noah, then Abraham, and then Sarah. And as far as I can tell, it's all in historically chronological order until you get to verse 32, and this verse is not chronological. Time-wise, you need to flip each pair because Barak came before Gideon, Jephthah came before Samson, and Samuel came before David. You say, well, what's the significance of that? I have no idea. It's just an observation. What is significant is this. All of these people had some serious shortcomings. Now, we spent ten Sundays on this verse, so I don't want to be redundant. But Gideon was cowardly at first and had to be coaxed, had to lay his fleece out twice to do what God called him to do. And then after his amazing victory with 300 men over a Midianite army of 135,000, Judges chapter 8, verses 24 to 27 tells us he made a golden ephod that lured Israel into idolatry. Barak won a great victory over the Canaanite army that had 900 chariots, but he wouldn't go unless Deborah went with him and held his hand. Samson routed the Philistines on numerous occasions, and yet he was tripped up by his lust for foreign women. Jephthah was the son of a harlot, and was driven away by his half-brothers. He was from a dysfunctional family. But later they called him back to be the deliverer of his people, and he won a great victory. And then you remember, he's the one who made that rash, foolish vow to sacrifice the first thing that came out of his house. And to his great sorrow, his daughter was the first one to greet him. David was a man after God's own heart who had great faith even as a teenager when he defeated Goliath. But later he committed adultery and then to try to cover it up, he committed murder. Samuel, although a godly man himself, failed to raise his sons to follow the Lord according to 1 Samuel 8, verses 1-3. 
to three. And Samuel was regarded as the first of the prophets, so the phrase the prophets includes everyone from Samuel all the way down to John the Baptist. And as a whole, they boldly spoke the truth of God and often suffered for it. But I would suggest to you that if you take the people in verse 32 and you hold them up to the light, they have a whole lot of glaring flaws. But in spite of their flaws, the author names each one of them as a hero of faith. And I don't know about you, but this list of people is encouraging to me. The point is not that you use this as an excuse to justify your sins. The point is that you don't have to wait until you're perfect to serve the Lord. God uses imperfect people. God uses flawed people like you and me who trust in Him. I think that's one of the great benefits of reading Christian biographies. Uh, a good biography doesn't describe the guy as if he walked on water because if I read that biography, I don't want to read about that guy because I don't walk on water. I want to read a biography that tells me about an individual's imperfections, his immaturity, his blind spots, and yet also read about how God used him to do great things. William Carey is called the father of modern missions. His, bi his biographer tells us that he had an illiterate wife who defiantly refused to go with him when he decided he was going to India. He was going to go without her, which tells me that he was a little bit defiant himself. But his departure was delayed by some problems, and so he and his traveling companion returned to his house where his companion laid a guilt trip on Carrie's wife he warned her that if she didn't accompany them, her family, according to the biographer, would be dispersed and divided forever and she would regret it as long as she lived. So she fearfully went with them only to be bitterly unhappy and finally to go insane in India. Kerry himself, according to his biographer, was an overly indulgent father who didn't correct his children. And after seven years of labor in India, he couldn't claim a single Indian convert. He had some flaws. And yet God used William Carey in an extraordinary way in spite of his flaws. Faith is available to flawed people. Second point. Faith accomplishes things that are explainable only by God's power. You see, in faith, the people listed and others who go unnamed did some things in verses 33 to the first part of verse 35, most of which are totally miraculous. Look at verse 33. It says, They conquered kingdoms. Reminds us of Gideon and of Barak and of Jephthah. And then the next phrase says, they performed acts of righteousness and then obtained promises. And you say, well, wait a minute, that's not really miraculous. That's rather routine. Well, it is until we look a little more closely because this phrase, performed acts of righteousness, makes me think of Samuel who stood before the people of Israel as an old man in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And he said, I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am. 
bear witness against me. How would you like to do that? Stand up in front of the nation and say, anybody who has an accusation against me, speak up. Samuel was able to do that and the response of the people was, we can't accuse you of anything because you have walked in righteousness. I would call that a miracle of God. And then it says they obtained promises. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David wanted to build God a house and God told him that he was going to have to trust God that God was going to have that house built by his son and then through his son was going to establish an everlasting kingdom. You see, promises don't get fulfilled without the miraculous power of God. And then verse 33 concludes with the phrase, shut the mouths of lions. Who's that remind us of? Daniel. And then verse 34, quench the power of fire. Reminds us of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Escape the edge of the sword. Elisha was delivered from King Aram when his whole army came and God blinded the entire army and allowed he and his servant to get away. Became mighty in war. Reminds us of Gideon and Samson. Put foreign armies to flight. You remember when David killed Goliath, it tells us that the Philistine army fled. And then verse 35 begins with this phrase, women receive back their dead by resurrection. Elijah raised the son of the widow of Zarephath. Elisha later raised the son of the Shumanite. And so these are miraculous things. But you know, there's a phrase in here, you may have noticed I skipped over it. And it's a phrase that is true of everyone who exercises faith. And that's the phrase in the middle of verse 34 that says, from weakness we're made strong. Faith requires recognizing our weakness so that we can lay hold of God's strength. Paul uses almost these exact words in 2 Corinthians 12.10 where he says, when I am weak, then am I strong. And Jesus made it real simple. In John 15.5, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Every Christian who has accomplished great things for God has known this truth at the very foundation of what they did. Robert Morrison, a pioneer missionary to China, was asked, do you really expect to make an impact on that great land? And he replied, no, sir, but I expect God to. George Mueller's biographer wrote of him, nothing is more marked in George Mueller to the very day of his death than this, that he so looked to God and leaned on God that he felt himself to be nothing and God to be everything. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to inland China, said, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. William Carey was a cobbler by trade. And most churchmen in his day believed that the Great Commission had been given only to the apostles. And therefore, they had no vision to reach the church or the world for Christ. 
But Kerry came to the revolutionary idea that foreign missions was the central responsibility of the church. And so he wrote a book promoting that thesis and he spoke to a group of ministers challenging them with the task of world missions. And in that talk, he made this now famous statement, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. The mission he established in India was plagued with problems, not the least of which was that he had an associate who mismanaged mission funds and made many enemies because of unpaid debts. I already told you about the problems that he had in his own family. And yet during his years in India, he translated the Bible into three languages. He supervised and edited translations into 36 languages. He produced a massive Bengali English dictionary. He pioneered social reform. He planted churches. He engaged in <coughs> sorry, medical relief. He founded the Agriculture and Horticultural Society of India. He founded a college. He founded many other schools. And he served as professor of Sanskrit, Bengali, and Marathi. I can barely say them. He was a weak, flawed cobbler made strong through faith in a mighty God. Let me ask you a personal question. What are you trusting God for right now that is beyond your human ability? What is there on your prayer list that if God did it, there would be absolutely no human explanation for it? You see, faith always involves the risk of putting yourself into a situation where if God doesn't come through, you will miserably fail. Now, I'm not encouraging you to have sloppy preparation and planning. There is nothing spiritual about spontaneity. But after you have made all your preparations and after you have made all your plans, your prayer ought to be, God, if you don't work, this whole thing is going to be a colossal failure. We need to be like Peter when he stepped out of the boat knowing fully well that if he doesn't hold me up, I'm going to sink. You know, our, church, our, our purpose as a church is really laughable apart from the power of God. Because our purpose as a church is all about presenting everyone complete in Christ. It's about taking people from brokenness to completeness, from being lost to being found, from hell to heaven, from condemnation to forgiveness. And we couldn't move you one inch in that direction apart from God. So the first outcome of faith may be miraculous results. God using flawed people to accomplish things explainable only by God's power. But there's a second outcome. And that is faith may bring the grace to endure terrible trials. Now the first phrase in verse 35 is kind of the apex of the miraculous he says, women receive back their dead by resurrection. It doesn't get any more impressive than that. And yet, without pausing 
He turns us in a different direction. Notice verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others received mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in ground. You say, wait a minute. These guys are losing. These guys must not have had faith. Well, he clarifies that in verse 39. Notice what he says. And all these, having gained approval through their faith. Those in the second half of this list were just as much people of faith as those in the first half. In fact, I think you could make the argument that those in the second half had more faith because I don't know if you've tried it or not, but it's not as easy to trust God when you're being scourged and stoned and sawn in two as it is when you're seeing foreign armies put to flight and the dead raised to life. Now, most of us are ready to sign up for the first part of this list, but we need to recognize that sometimes God is pleased to withhold the spectacular and bless us instead with His grace to endure overwhelming trials. When Paul got a thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he had faith. And he prayed that God would take it away. And what was God's answer to him? You remember? It's in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. You see, sometimes God delivers us miraculously and sometimes He gives us the grace to endure terrible trials without wavering. And I would suggest to you that both of those are miraculous. We've got people in our congregation right now who are going through intense trials. I think of the Paul Berry family. They've just got a list of things that just seems to go on and on. Jim and Charlotte Drury right now are going through some major trials. Cindy Olson, major trial. Bruce Waring breaks his arm a few weeks ago and then falls off the house and breaks and shatters his ankle. Do these people have less faith than the rest of us? What I love is verse 34 says, By faith, some by faith escaped the edge of the sword. And then verse 37 says, Some by faith were put to death with the sword. You see, the same faith leads to both outcomes. Now you can go back through this last part of the list and you can, you can find connections to all of these things in the Old Testament except one phrase that I couldn't find, and that's the phrase uh, sawn in two. 
But tradition tells us that's what happened to the prophet Isaiah. People got so tired of hearing him preach, they just cut him in half. Now I want you to notice something. These are people of faith who are not experiencing health and wealth. They're not healthy. They're injured, suffering, imprisoned, afflicted, and dying. And they are not wealthy. They are destitute. They are wearing sheepskins and goatskins. They're wandering around in the desert. They're living in caves and holes in the ground. And my favorite phrase in this whole passage is the first phrase in verse 38 where it says in parentheses, men of whom the world was not worthy. The world literally drove them out. The world thought they weren't worthy. But the truth is that the world was not worthy to have them in it. Sometimes when we're suffering, we start to ask questions like, have I done something wrong? Is God punishing me? No. You see, these suffering, destitute, poverty-ridden people with no clothes and no home are people of faith. And they are people of the highest honor and worth in God's eyes. So sometimes faith doesn't bring deliverance. Sometimes faith brings the grace to endure horrible, painful circumstances. And then the third outcome. Faith will always bring eternal rewards. Look at verse 39. It says, And all these... <coughs> I'm sorry, excuse me. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now all these really refers to everybody he's mentioned in this chapter. They all gained approval through their faith. All these Old Testament believers gained approval through their faith, yet they did not receive what was promised. So what's that mean? I mean, back in verse 17, it says, Abraham received the promise of Isaac. It tells us in verse 33 that others obtained promises by faith. So what are these promises that the Old Testament saints didn't get? Well, look at verse 40. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. What's the something better? It's the theme of the book of Hebrews. It's Jesus and the new covenant. And what do we get? He tells us in the last phrase of the chapter, we are made perfect. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 says that the old covenant with its sacrifices could not make the worshipers perfect. But then in verse 10 of that same chapter, it says, we under the new covenant have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And his point is that Old Testament believers didn't get perfection apart from us, but along with us, we all get it. And the writer of Hebrews has used this word perfection as a synonym for salvation. We are made perfect. 
And what comes with perfection? What comes with salvation? Eternal life and eternal destiny. You see, we get what they were looking for back in verse 16. Remember that verse? But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You see, faith will always bring eternal rewards. Now let me sum this up with two simple applications. Application number one. Faith is ready to sacrifice present comfort for future reward. Paul illustrates that perspective in 2 Corinthians 4.17 where he says that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul calls his current situation momentary light affliction. Now what was Paul's momentary light affliction? Well, you can read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 because he lists them for us. And included in that is being beaten with rods, being beaten with whips, imprisonments, being stoned, being shipwrecked, often without food, often in danger of death. They were light in comparison with future glory. And that is always the perspective of faith. Martin Luther put it this way in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And then second simple application. Faith trusts in God, leaving the results to His sovereignty. Let me say that again. Faith trusts in God, leaving the results to His sovereignty. Some people trust in God and He grants spectacular results. Other people trust in the same mighty God and He enables them to endure horrific trials by His grace. The difference is not in the people the difference is not in their faith. The difference is in God's sovereign purpose in each situation. We trust God decides. And you and I know the same God that these Old Testament saints knew. In fact, we have even a greater knowledge because we personally know Jesus Christ. So we should trust Him just as they did whether He lets us be killed by the sword like the Apostle James, or whether He lets us escape the sword like the Apostle Peter. We should trust Him just as they did, whether He lets us be crucified upside down like Peter, or whether He lets us live to a ripe old age like John. See, I can't tell you whether or not if you have faith, you're going to drive a Mercedes-Benz or you're going to ride a bicycle. I can't tell you whether or not if you have faith, you're going to escape the edge of the sword or you're going to be sliced to pieces. I can't tell you whether or not if you have faith, you're going to go on that trip and have safety or whether you're going to have a head-on collision. 
But I can tell you that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, your eternal destiny is settled. And when you know that, the temporal outcomes aren't that significant. They are light and they are momentary. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for the